It's June 12, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. On our program today, Beethoven, Bernardi, and Pristovsky. The National Arts Centre Orchestra presents a very special program this week to honour our founding concertmaster, Walter Pristovsky, who is retiring after 37 years with the orchestra. Our founding conductor, Mario Bernardi, has been invited back to lead the orchestra in this special tribute. And our program, Bach, the concerto in D minor for two violins, featuring Walter Pristovsky and Donnie Deacon, the orchestra's principal second violin. Mozart, the 20th piano concerto, with our friend and audience favorite, Jackie Parker. And to finish, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And it really seems such a perfect program for our orchestra, which has so consistently demonstrated an affinity and excellence in the classical repertoire. Mario Bernardi's legacy at the NAC has been lasting, Although he left the position of music director 25 years ago, his exacting musical standards and his skill and his discipline remain with the orchestra to this day. Well, I spent an evening with Mario Bernardi last week, and I happened to have an old tape recorder with me. We were sitting at his piano with a glass of wine and had a very wide-ranging conversation, beginning with the subject of Beethoven's symphonies, and later the talk turned to the early years of the National Arts Centre Orchestra and the critical role Walter Prostowski played in its success. I began by asking Mario about the Seventh Symphony, what it meant in terms of its forward-reaching view of music. Well, it's, it's a great step forward for, even for Beethoven. I mean, when you think of the Sixth Symphony being sort of subdued and, and uh, introspective in a way, uh, not particularly brilliant, uh, the seventh was was a, a, a burst of energy. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the most uh, popular of, of all Beethoven symphony. Wouldn't you think so? Yeah, I think so. It's it's yeah. interesting in in my experience of Beethoven. I tend to view the odd number symphonies as the more yeah, progressive yeah. symphonies. Well, I mean, the, the fifth, fifth symphony is the great. You know, the 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 finger of fate or whatever it is that, that, that it was called, and, and the seventh. And the eighth is very small scale. And, of course, the ninth is, is a great, great, great explosion of, of, of creativity. And, well, and, uh, when you consider the originality and the innovation, the beginning of the first symphony starting on a dominant seventh, the audacity of beginning in a non-tonic key, huh? That's right. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Right. Seventh Symphony, it's the rhythmic character more than anything, yeah. isn't it, that, that yeah. defines it? The 6-8 rhythm, yeah, which is damn difficult to, to, to keep. It's amazing, you know. Yeah. 
What, how does an orchestra tend to, it tends to slip into an almost two-four misinterpretation of the rhythm? That's right, yeah, you have to fight that. Uh, it's it's uh, difficult to explain, but it's, it's uh, orchestras seem to have a, a hard time with that kind of rhythm. The Allegro of the Seventh Symphony, the first movement, is in six-eight yeah. times. So the subdivision is into one, two, three, four, five, six, one, adapam, ba bam ba. And yet orchestras have a tendency to slip into more of a two-four rhythm, don't they? If you forget the little note in between, pum 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 pum, it sounds like just two in a bar, right? Mm-hmm. But the subdivision has to be stressed out. The fact that there's attention there, it's, uh, maybe that's the secret. When it sounds wrong, you know that it's wrong. How do you conceive structurally, architecturally, the introduction to the first movement? It starts with this massive A major chord yeah. and then into the singing long phrase in the oboe. Yeah. wonderful introduction to what's coming, I suppose, you know. You, you have no inkling of what's, what's going to happen a few bars later. And that sly transition in the first flute and first oboe where the 6-8 rhythm gradually, gradually evolves. Oh, yeah. Must have been in a very optimistic mood when he came up with this, huh? Yeah, I I, I don't remember historically when it, where he was in in his life with that. Yeah, I mean, assuming that his life had anything to do with what he was writing. Um, well, that's an extraordinary statement too, isn't it? Because both in Mozart and Beethoven, well, there was it, this disconnect between the personal pain and yet and and the product of the music that was coming out at the same well, time. Well, in, in Mozart's case, completely. You know, I mean, he was at his, his uh, complete depth of dis- desperation with, with uh, God knows what, his wife maybe cheating on him and, and terrible uh, financial problems and so on, and uh, and health problems too. And, and uh, yet he, he composed a magic flute, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing much happier than that. And Beethoven consumed by deafness at this period of his life, and yet yet having this sense of lightness and dance. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's what makes a a genius what what he is. Second movement of the Seventh Symphony, for me, one of the one of the curious 
most curious movements of Beethoven is trying to figure out a tempo that moves. Yeah, well, about the second movement is is that it is not a lento, it is not a, a slow movement, really. And it should be, I think it's taken, taken too slowly most of the time. I mean, I myself, thinking back of the way I used to do it, um, I think I did it too slowly. But it is an andante, I'm, I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. It's not a death march, you know. Just, as just, you've matured as a conductor, are you taking a faster tempo? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's often said that conductors tend slow to down. slow down <laughs> as they get older. No, I, I think the last movement for it should go like like a whirlwind. It's a little con brio, you know? Yeah. It should be as fast as you can possibly play it. Is the seventh an optimistic symphony? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's just ebullient. Top of, of one joy, really. I think it's a joy, joyful symphony, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you take yourself back 36 years, 37 oh, years to the, to, <laughs> to the founding of the National Arts Center Orchestra, yeah. surely the repertoire of Mozart and Beethoven would have been foremost in your programming in those early years because of the size of the orchestra. Oh, yes. I mean, that was, that was the meat and potatoes. It's actually very extraordinary in the year 2006 to be talking to the founding music director of an orchestra because throughout North America and in Europe, almost every other orchestra has a tradition going back a century or more. And yet you were involved at the ground floor of the founding of an important orchestra. Can you give us a little bit of a recollection of the forces, the cultural forces and imperatives that drove the, the creation of the NAC Orchestra in 1969? Where, where, what was the first phone call that you had? <laughs> well, I was living in London then, and uh, people said, well, we want to form an orchestra uh, in Ottawa. Would you be interested? And so on. And, well, I, was, I had a very good position then. I was music director of Sadler's Wells Opera in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea sort of appealed to me, and yet not, you know. I didn't know what people there, I remember, said, what are you going to, Ottawa? They didn't even know how to spell it. Ottawa, Ottawa, what is that? It's O-T-T-O-W-A. That's right, that's right, that's right. Exactly that. And uh, mind you, they couldn't spell my name either, so... (laughs) Um, No, but it it was a big big jump to, to take for me. I mean, I had conducted maybe 50 operas by then, hundreds of times, hundreds of performances. I had maybe, what, two symphonies, three symphonies in my repertoire. It meant that that first year was was really extraordinarily difficult for me. I was learning new repertoire week by week as it went on. And And with a very young orchestra. With a with a non-existent orchestra, I mean, it was a, you know we were infants, 
And of course, the, the usual problems that you have at the beginning of an orchestra, of any institution, in fact. You had a rather remarkable opportunity in 1969 to handpick your own orchestra. This is why, for instance, I went out of my way to find people like, like Walter Persofsky, who was a Canadian, whom I knew slightly from my student days in Toronto, but who had moved to Switzerland. And uh, I was then uh, living, as I said, uh, in, in London, and I got him to come up and play for me in London. And he auditioned for me. We played. Uh, we spent a whole day playing sonatas and so on, so that I could sense what what his musicality. What had was. been your earlier experience with him as a student? I think we did a recital once, but I really can't remember mm-hmm. what we played or when it was. But it was something in the probably in the fifties or so. The two of you must have had an enormous collaboration in building the string section of the oh, yeah. orchestra. Oh, yeah. And many, many hours of consultation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, he did all the Boeings in the, in the first few years. He completely relied on him. He did not only the first violins, but he did the whole orchestra. And uh, his, I mean, he had far more orchestral experience than I did because he, he had been uh, uh, in a... In a in the Basel Orchestra for for years and so on. I mean, it was quite quite a decent uh, orchestra, I believe. And it was, uh, I felt, quite a coup for us to to be able to inveigle him to come to, to Ottawa. To get Walter to come here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, for me, it, it turned out completely well. I mean, it was a great, great uh, choice. This remarkable opportunity here this week with the NAC Orchestra to see come full circle this long history know, of I Mario know. Bernardi and Walter Krzysztofski <laughs> on stage together. Isn't it amazing? 1969 to 2006 and you're right, right, finishing yeah. this this uh, this t- wonderful tenure that he's had together. Many vicissitudes in between, many ups and downs. You know, I don't, uh, you know, there were, it wasn't always uh, lovely swimming, you of know, course, yeah. uh, down down river. It was uh, sometimes there were there were clashes and so well, on. Well, of course, by nature, you the organization can only grow by conflicts between that's right between that's people. Right. Yeah. yeah, but it it was good. It was good to. I'm very thankful to him for for what he did for for the orchestra. He was a great uh, help to me. That was, of course, Walter Pistovsky, playing the opening of Beethoven's F Major Romance. 
and that from a concert in 1987. We're going to return to another solo recording of Walter Prostowski in a few minutes. But first, we're going backstage to speak with some of my NAC orchestra colleagues. You know, Walter may not want to speak much about himself, but his many colleagues are ready to step up to the plate and hit a few homers when it comes to extolling his remarkable contribution to the NACO. So in keeping with the spirit of our concerts this week, I've invited a few National Arts Centre Orchestra musicians, original NAC musicians, I must add, who were at the orchestra from the very beginning in 1969, and they continue to be with us today. Violinists, Elaine Clamasco, Caroli Salati and clarinetist Peter Smith. Welcome all. Thank you. Thank you. So, Elaine Clamasco, it was a pretty brazen experiment in 1969 to create an orchestra right out of, you know, out of thin air. Did you have any idea in 1969 when you joined the orchestra that, first of all, it would be a thriving success all these years later and that you would still be part of it 37 years later? Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> Uh, after 37 years, a lot of people have already gotten the gold watch and uh, are in their fifth year in Florida, and uh, <laughs> such is not the case. And I was actually reflecting the other day about Walter's age in comparison to my age, and I have 18 years left to go if I'm going to do what he did. So there you go. I'm not sure if I'm going to succeed at that. But you know, I was so young when I arrived, Chris. I was I was 19 years of age, and I had almost no orchestral experience when I came, other than you know with some student orchestras and. And I mean, every day was an incredible thrill for me because I had never played all of these magnificent works. I hadn't even heard many of those magnificent works at that time. So for me to step in um, like that from the beginning was, it, it, was just, it was just a joy. I mean, it was like, I'm getting paid for something I love to do as much as this. You and of know? course, Walter Prostovsky at the time had by far the most experience of anyone on stage. Can you talk a little bit about the early development of the ensemble and the importance of Walter's contribution at the time? Well, it was extremely important, and I think that many of us, if not all of us, feel strongly that, that it was his influence and his direction that helped us to gain the international reputation that we gained for this, shall I say, precision, to use that word first, but obviously for many other wonderful reasons too. But the thing about Walter as as a colleague, I mean, here he was with all with all this experience. And for instance, I was 19 years of age, and you know, he he was an incredible role model, not just for me, but for for all of us, because he has this amazing worth work ethic that I had never had any exposure to that kind of thing before and you know he taught us all to listen to the other instruments in the orchestra to to listen to what was happening not just to worry about the first violin section um he treated from my very first day here he treated me with great respect and i've never forgotten that because it's a very important thing and i i try to do the same now in my experiences with with my younger colleagues, um, I was his youngest colleague, and I didn't perhaps expect that kind of respect from the very beginning. And when somebody respects you, of course, you respect them back, and you know, um, good working relationships develop as a result of that. The other thing that that was very important to me was that I was young enough that I didn't have a family or a husband or any of those things at that time yet. So the orchestra sort of became my family. And um, we were such a very small group, and, and you know we 
we we were together through good times and, and oh, difficult times. Picking and, up on that idea, Carole Salati, you were part of the original first violin section of the NAC Orchestra, and it was a very stable group of musicians, ha- is to this day, but certainly for the first few years there were very few changes. Well, I came in with a few years of experience from Kingston Symphony, Hamilton, Philharmonic, NYO, and so on. And I very much looked forward to the very first day of the orchestra's rehearsal and downbeat. And I found Walter was, for me personally, like kind of a shield from a strong concert, a strong conductor, Mario, who was like a kind of a taskmaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, Walter always knew how to handle all the situations. And because we knew that Mario was after a certain kind of sound. And uh, Walter was the, the, the very, very experienced man who um, we were all able to uh, rely on, watch him anytime he came in. I never remember him ever coming in wrong. His bowings, uh, extremely, uh, very playable. You know, you could tell that this is going to suit anybody's right hand. Um, I've never seen a concertmaster who's done so much work in an orchestra like he has. And the one thing I thought always that how can a man play the overture, a solo concerto, the symphony, and very often on tours, even playing encores. And the one thing that stuck out of my mind one time we came back from Robert Elaine remembers and Peter, that he was lying on the back of the aeroplane coming back to Canada from Mexico. <laughs> mm-hmm. He looked totally dead. And I said, now there is a concertmaster who's done just about everything possible humanly. <laughs> what is it about his physical abilities uh, that made him visually an effective leader? He played very much at ease. You know, he was he was easy to follow. Like, you have to have your eye definitely partly on him and partly on the conductor. He was very yeah. economical in his, oh, in his yes. body motions. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. There was never a, a moment when he wasted uh, time on something, you know, that was useless. Mm-hmm. Peter Smith, you come from a slightly different perspective, sitting in the woodwind section, but you were there from the beginning. Yes, from the beginning. And uh, Walter was uh, a great inspiration to all of us back there. And uh, uh, he gave us confidence just by his uh, his rapport that he had with his playing and uh, the effect he had on everybody around him, you know, from his experience before that. And uh, it, he was a very solid man, a very solid performer. And that really gave us a backbone so that we could follow confidently and and do our best as well, allowed us to do our best in that way. I think people don't realize that you don't have to be a violinist to see the concertmaster as a leader in the orchestra. Oh, absolutely not, no. Uh, and yet the, the the rapport that that a person like like Walter has allows us to be freer and to be more confident in in uh, not only ourselves but in everybody in the group and our whole idea of playing together and and making music and making it better and better and better every day you know and so um Walter was very strong in that influence to us and um, it still continues today, right up till today. My Stanford and I used to always say that um, in any given season, you could count on one hand the number of mistakes Walter would make in any given season. Yes. I mean, this man, this man was sharp. <laughs> he had this capacity to to um, do what he was doing 
100%. And I, in all my life, I don't know if I've ever actually met another individual with that kind of concentration. He, You know, sort of our little problems in daily life and everything. He was able to just block that out. And he, we talked about it a few times, too, and he, he explained that to me. He just had this capacity to sit down and just forget about everything else and just do the job at hand, you know. It was remarkable. Yeah. Caroli, as we come into this final week of this wonderful long association between Walter Brustovsky and the National Arts Centre Orchestra, are you going to have any particular single memory of Walter that you'll be thinking about this week's concerts? One moment that I think about is when I did my second round of audition, um, 69, 71. It was the opening in the first violin uh, for the first violin section, and uh, because I played second violin the first two years, and then I remember that day, and I was pretty scared because I was hoping to get it. I always wanted to play first violin, like in the NYO and so on, Kingston, Hamilton. He made me at so much at ease, you know, that uh, I remember I just walked in, and the way he talked, and the way he asked, "What am I going to play?" and just start any time, and you know. And, that now this is a man, you know, who's a, like a true pedagogue, a true professional violinist who makes his, he treats me like a partner, not like, well, I'm just going to be a section player and, you know, just play it whenever you're ready, you know, and I never forget that moment. Peter Smith, our NACO listeners probably would like to know from a non-violinist, can you summarize for us the role of the concertmaster, the f- functional musical role of a concertmaster yeah, in an they, orchestra. Well, they, well, just the the um, the way that his personal character and his music portray themselves, uh, and uh, the command that he has of his of his playing, and the way he expresses himself through his playing as well. And we hear that, you see, and it affects us greatly. Mm-hmm. It affects all of us greatly. And uh, and I think that um, j- just because of, of his character, the way he's dedicated, and uh, it gives us the confidence that we want when we're playing and when we're trying to do our best and try to do even more than our best. It allows to us to supersede our best, you see. And that's the way things worked in this orchestra. And I think that Walter's inspiration was a big part of that. Elaine, it's going to be a bit of a bittersweet moment, but also a beautiful moment, the remarkable symmetry of this program that we're finishing with Beethoven, which has been so much the heart and soul of the repertoire of this orchestra, and we're finishing with Mario Bernardi on the podium and Walter in the chair. It's a, uh, it's, it's a beautiful moment, but it's going to be a little difficult. I think so. Uh, sort of full, full circle, if you like. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing Mario again also, and to having, there are how many, seven of us now, Caroline and Peter left, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. we, we are a few. I would like to share with you just one very quick Walter story, one of my favorite stories. And it's not necessarily speaking of him in glowing terms, but I think it's, it's, it's very appropriate. I was on one occasion asked to sit with him um, for a concert. Uh, I was obviously quite nervous to be on the front stand like that, and I came out and... Um, took my place in my chair and as always he turned to me and was very cordial and said good morning and uh, we started to rehearse immediately something very very difficult 
well, I was I was a wreck. I was really, really nervous. I was perspiring. And after about 15 minutes, there was a little lull in the rehearsal, and Walter sort of turned to me with that famous smile of his, and I thought, oh, this compassionate man, he's going to now, you know, just reassure me and, and support me. And he turned to me, and he looked at me, and he said, and you thought it was going to be fun and easy up here, did you? <laughs> I'll never forget that. Uh, well, we're n- none of us are going to forget his remarkable legacy to the orchestra. Thank you all for speaking with me. Elaine Clamasco, Caroli Salati, and Peter Smith, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that brings our edition of NACOcast to an end, although we still have one more musical treat at the very end of the program for you. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you about this and any other programs. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on NACOcast. So until next week, this is Christopher Millard, and as I promised, one more example of the wonderful playing of Walter Pistowski. Here from an archival performance from March of 1994, Walter is performing Gene Coulthard's The Bird of Dawning Singeth All Night Long. I hope you enjoy this. Bye for now. <laughs>